0: Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well we are going to be starting a series tonight called the Resistance as you guys saw uh, the uh, the wonderful trailer, which by the way uh, I don't uh, today somebody sent me something about Star, Star Wars. I'm like, sorry, dude, I don't know as it was Luke. Luke, I have no idea about Star Wars, but anyways, um, I assume some of you do. okay um, what we're going to look at is a, a story uh, a series called Resistance, we're going to look at the three enemies of the soul that we as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, or if you are investigating being a follower of Jesus, you're going to realize that there are some enemies that want to impede you following Jesus and living in the will of God, and we're going to look at the three uh, primary enemies that we see throughout Scripture and uh, that saints have written about and talked about for hundreds of years. And so the, what are those three enemies, you may ask? Well, uh, the first one is the devil, the second one is the flesh, and the third is the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the three enemies of the soul. And so we are going to spend a week on each of them. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at those three. By the way, let me just say this, that as, as we go through this series, um, a lot that I'm going to say, and probably others as well as as we, uh, as we go, will be drawn, obviously from the scriptures, but from the help of a book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer, a wonderful book that talks about this topic. And so I would commend it to you. But as we deal with these three enemies, my hope is this, is that you will learn to flourish in your walk with God as you learn how to resist these enemies and follow Jesus. It was 1981. By the way, it's kind of dark. I think we need maybe a little bit more light. I'm not for sure, but I feel like I can see people's faces typically. Okay. It was 1981, during the height of the Cold War in Sweden. Okay, it was in the height, oh, let there be light, and there was. It was like creation all over again. Okay, anyways, um, in Sweden, something very unusual happened. Now, Sweden wasn't part of the Cold War. They tried to be neutral, um, but one day in 1981, a fisherman was uh, fishing in the, around some rocky bays in Sweden and he could not believe what he saw. He came upon a Russian submarine that had surfaced and beached itself on the rocks of his harbor. And of course, he was shocked. So what did he do? He called the Swedish Navy to come in and to investigate such a thing. And so the Swedish Navy started circling around the the Russian sub, and so then they started talking to the Russians and and asked if they could come in. The Russians said, no, you cannot come in, of course, right? And so uh, then they were doing some assessments of the size of the sub, and they came to the conclusion that the size of the sub, this was a nuclear sub. It had nuclear warheads on it, and they had no idea It was even in the region. And so you can imagine they were shocked and appalled by this reality. The the Russians said that it was simply uh, uh, that all their navigation tools had uh, broken and that they had ended up there um, with, with no intent. So the tugboats of Sweden took them out into the bay and the submarine went back off into the bay. But Sweden said, we have to do something. So they started uh, some ways to monitor these subs and they planted hydrophones underneath the water so they could hear if a sub was underneath the water. And about every six to 12 months, they would hear what became known as the typical sound. And they would hear this typical sound and it was the sound that, uh, that, 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 that these submarines would make. And so what they would do is they would deploy the troops, the, the helicopters would start to go up into the air, they would drop bombs into the area where they heard the typical sound, it would, the bomb would submerge to a depth that was pre-decided and then explode and they would wait. And nothing ever came to the surface. Six or 12 months later, again and again, and of course, every time this would happen, the news spread around Sweden, and people would think, oh no, we may be on the edge of nuclear war, and fear would grip Sweden. Well, in 1996, after 15 years of this going on, finally, they decided to welcome some oceanographers into the circle, and they said, we would like to play the typical sound for you, and so you can help us with this. So they welcomed, this was the first time civilians had ever heard the typical sound because it was top secret, and so they welcomed them in, and they played the sound, and immediately the oceanographer said, I don't think that's a submarine. So they went to work trying to figure out what is this noise? And here is what they figured out. It was not a submarine indeed. It was a school of red herrings. Okay. The school of red herrings was making this noise because red herrings have unique digestive systems that for them to know what level, or to, to adjust what level of water they would swim in, they have to release air. And then they can go up into more shallow water. So what they were detecting was a school of red herrings passing gas. And when (laughs) that would happen, I mean, I just think that's hilarious. For 15 years, Sweden lived in fear of a nuclear war when it was red herrings passing gas. Which, by the way, I think I know why Swedish fish are now red. I don't know. This is my theory. Okay, I'm just going out on a limb. Here's the point. There's a point to all this. Here's the point. The misinformation, as unintentional as it was, led people to live in fear and to go into the wrong direction. They were dropping bombs on fish, circling them with helicopters, because misinformation caused fear, and that fear led to the wrong actions. Misinformation is extreme consequential. But what about when misinformation isn't accidental, it's actually intentional? Uh, Mark Sayers, uh, a a pastor in Australia, Melbourne, Australia, talks about how in today's wars, when we typically think of war or battle, we tend to think of uh, people fighting with planes and tanks and, and guns to try to take a territory who will control the land. And of course, that still happens, and that's part of the, the current fabric of nation against nation and so on. However, there's another battle in which, or another front in which those battles actually are continually waged, and that is the battle not over who will control the territory, but the battle over who will control the narrative. So for example, we hear stories of, of rumors of bot farms in foreign countries who are producing misinformation and trying to feed it into our news cycle and feed it onto your, onto your uh, social media feeds that you will then pass along that misinformation and it's all with a desire to control the narrative because here's what they know. If they control the narrative, they will eventually control the territory. In other words, if they control the narrative, they can then manipulate the the narrative to give them control of the territory. I want to submit to you tonight that the battle that we are involved in is very, very similar to that. That the battle that we are involved in, what the Scripture with the devil is actually a battle where the goal of the devil, Jesus tells us what his goal is, and simply this, to steal, to kill, and destroy. He wants to bring destruction into your life and into our society, into our culture. And how does he do it? What is his primary tactic? His primary tactic is this, to control the narrative, to feed us misinformation to control the narrative so ultimately he can control the territory of our world. How does he do it? How does he do it? The primary tactic of the enemy, the way that you fight him, the way that I fight him, the primary way we fight him is with this. Are you guys ready? With lies. He seeks to control the territory or the narrative with lies. Okay, is that true? Is that true, Pete? I'm so glad you asked. Let me uh, show you a little overview of what we learn about, uh, about the devil in the Bible. Okay, so chapter 3 of the Bible, the third chapter, and we are introduced to the serpent who is later called the devil. And here's what we learned. We're going to actually talk about this passage a lot tonight. We learned that he is crafty and that he lies, okay? <clears throat> At the foundational level, we learned that he's crafty and that he lies. Okay, then Jesus... When he teaches about, uh, about the devil, he actually has a conversation with some people who are in opposition to him where they start talking about the devil. And here's what he says. He says this. He's speaking of, uh, of, of Satan, the devil. He says this. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar And the father of lies. Okay, so if you want to know what the enemy is like, this is a description that Jesus gives. There's no truth in him. His native tongue, what what language does he speak? Lies. He is a liar and the father of lies. John Mark Comer puts it this way. Go ahead and hit the next slide. He says this, father of lies means that he is the origin point of deception. Deception. Deception flows from him. He's the father of it. He's the beginning point of the deception. Okay, then at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, here's what we learn. it, it, It speaks of Satan who leads the whole world astray. Then the third to the last chapter of the Bible, so the third chapter of the Bible, we see him deceive. The third to the last chapter of the Bible Here's how his work is summarized. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. What do we learn? We learn the first work that he does is he seeks to deceive. Jesus, when he talks about his work, says that, That he is the origin point of deception. When his work is summarized at the end of the Bible, it's it's summarized by saying he's the one who led people into deception. His primary strategy of bringing death and destruction in this world is by sowing lies. Trying to control the narrative through lies. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to spend some time in Genesis chapter 3 tonight. And what I want to do is I want to look at the three types of lies that we often um, come against that we need to resist. And then I want to talk about how do we overcome lies, okay? Um, that the enemy would throw our way. Okay, so Genesis chapter 3, first book of the Bible, third chapter, what's classically known the fall. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. It says this, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Okay, what I'd like to do is just spend a few minutes looking at the three types of lies that are kind of bundled up in this temptation and see how we face those in our own lives today. So the first kind of lie that that we see is the lie about the character of God. See, this is the very first lie that they face. is there's a little small seed of, of doubt that, that the enemy sows into the conversation. Did God really say he, and, and it has this kind of touch of condescension, like, you wow, I can't believe he'd say something like that. You know, kind of th- this little bit of condescension, this little bit of skepticism to get them to, to question, "Is God really good? Did he really say that? And then, of course, he follows it up with, For God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened. In other words, okay, so, so he, he's, he's not trying to keep good for you. He's actually keeping good from you. He knows if you eat it, what will happen. So the very first thing we see is he questions the very character of God. So what does that look like in our lives today? What happens when this, so maybe you're going through life and all of a sudden you start to question the goodness of God in your life because of some circumstances that you find yourself facing. Or maybe there's a lot of uncertainty in the future and you, and you wonder, is he really good? Can I really trust him with the uncertainty? And here's what happens when you start to, start to waver and if you can trust him because you're not for sure if he's good, here's the next thing that will happen. Worry and anxiety will pounce on you. Because if you don't believe that you can trust in the goodness of God, that means that you have to take control of things. That means it's all upon your shoulders, and worry and anxiety will overwhelm you. Not only that, when you question um, the, the character of God, whether it be his goodness or his greatness or his holiness, here's what will happen you will start to become more likely. To not be willing to submit to him and start to rebel. Because you can't trust in his goodness. You don't have a sense of his holiness or his greatness. And so, in the midst of it, worry and anxiety and rebellion flow out of questioning the character of God. Now, here's the thing. He couldn't get them to question the existence of God because they had walked with God in the cool of the day. But what he could get them to question was the character of God? Does he really love you? Is he really good? Is he really faithful? Is he trustworthy? Ah, no, no, no. So number one, he, que- he caused them to question the character of God, which is a questioning of their theology. Secondly, we see that he gets us to question who we are. The, qu- the second kind of lie is the lie we face of who are we? And so in the text, it says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, if you will just do, if you will just cut the cord and express your autonomy, then you'll be like God. You can be, you don't need to be dependent upon him. You can be your own. You, you can be the arbiter. You're wise enough. You've got this. Call your own shots. Um, Another way that this can look, causing us to question who we are looks like us questioning our identity um, of who we are and who we are intended to be. Where do we find our identity? Um, it's interesting to me that when Jesus faces temptation with the enemy in the wilderness, what happened right before he went into the wilderness? Let me tell you. He was baptized right before he went into the wilderness. At his baptism, here's what happens. He's baptized in water. He comes up. The Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form in the shape of a dove. Pretty cool. And a voice comes from heaven that says this. This is my son whom I love in him, I'm well pleased. So you hear that his identity of who he is with God is expressed. God's pleasure over him is expressed. This is my son. God's love for him is expressed, right? Then he immediately goes into the wilderness. And what, is the, what are the first words of the temptation that Jesus faced? Listen to it. If you are the son of God. What? that what was proclaimed over him is now the very source of the first temptation if you are then turn that bread into or turn that stone into bread in other words if you are who you think you are then prove it wow if Jesus would have followed in suit to prove that he was the Son of God by turning that stone into bread for the rest of his life, he would have to prove who he was. Instead of attaching, attaching his identity to the word of affirmation from the Father, he would say, No, I'm going to live to prove to people who I am. Have you ever fell for that one? Oh, <laughs> I have. Instead of attaching your identity to the affirmation of what the Father says, you now attach your affirmation to your performance? Let me give you some ideas of what this can sound like when we try to, um, or, or when we face the lies about ourselves. It can sound something like this. You need to perform to prove that you're lovable, valuable, valuable. acceptable. I'm sure no one's ever felt that way. No one's ever been battled that lie here at UVA, right? Or how about this one? God only loves me when I have it all together. That's the only time God loves me is when I have it all together. Or how about this one? My value is dependent on how I match up to a specific, narrow, cultural standard of beauty. Or, how about this one? No one will love me if they really know who I am, so I'll keep everyone at arm's length. See, the first kind of lie that we face is with our theology. The second kind of lie we face is with who we are, with our anthropology. Who are we, and who are we intended to be? What is our identity? And of course, the third kind of lie that we see in this passage is over the nature of the good life. What is the good life? Well, the devil, he'll tell you. Fundamentally, this, that the good life's over in the tree over there. The one tree amongst all the trees that God gave in to Ephraim. The good life is found in the one tree he said no to. That he said, don't eat of that tree. That's where the good life is found. And he says this, you will certainly not die. That's just a bunch of hooey. You won't die? Well, what does that sound like today? Maybe it sounds like this. Life is found by being a connoisseur of pleasure and centering your life around yourself. That's where the good life is. Just be a connoisseur of pleasure and center your life around yourself. But here's the problem. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, You lose it. But he who seeks to lose his life for my sake and for the gospel will actually save it. So, Jesus, I mean, because here's the thing here's what I know that joy is not the byproduct of comfort and pleasure, joy is the byproduct of purpose and knowing you're loved. Okay, so maybe it sounds something like this, that the good life is found in sexual fulfillment and being involved in romantic relationships. That's where the good life is, sexual fulfillment. Don't let anybody impede your sexual fulfillment and being in a romantic relationship. And so if you're not experiencing one of those two, then I can just tell you, you're not living the good life. Hmm. Well, Jesus says this, I came that you may have life and life to the full, John 10.10. And when he said that, I just have this sneaking suspicion he wasn't talking about sex. That it, it, frankly, wasn't even in his mind. Because Jesus says this, eternal life is this, knowing the Father and knowing the one whom he has sent. In other words, that the good life is found in knowing God and following Jesus. In fact, if your definition of the good life is by being in a romantic relationship and being sexually fulfilled, then Jesus did not live the good life. And if you are defining the good life in a way that Jesus didn't live it, then you're kind of at odds with him because he says he's the very source of life. Or maybe it's about this. Maybe it's about living for the approval of the crowd. Like, if you can just get the crowd to approve you, and I don't know, maybe it's about Instagram likes, maybe it's about getting into an upper-tier sorority or fraternity. I, I don't know how, how you would measure approval, but here's the problem with that. Um, Mark Batterson said this, that when you live for the applause of the crowd, you also die by the criticism of it. Right? If you live... By their affirmation, you die by the criticism of the crowd. See, the Bible tells us that we are to live for the applause of only nail-scarred hands. And here's the good news is those nail-scarred hands are nail-scarred because they're already inclined towards you by his grace and by his love. Isn't that good news? And that you just live for the applause of those hands. And by the way, I was thinking about this, I talked to Amy before I came, I was like, by, by these three things, of if the good life's in comfort and uh, being selfish, then Jesus didn't live that, because he said that, I, that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many, so that doesn't sound like comfort or pleasure. And then he lived a celibate life, and then he was crucified because he was so popular, And so it means that those are fundamentally lies. Now, here's the thing all three of those aren't bad, right? I mean, I would consider those all to be a blessing. Comfort and pleasure are good, sex, God created, more romantic relationships, good, approval, good. But isn't that the nature of lies? That every lie has some element of truth in it, but then it is twisted in a way where it's not true anymore. That's the nature of a good lie. In other words, they're not bad things. They're good things that can be blessings. They just can't be ultimate things in the source of your good life. Jesus says that it's connected with him. Okay. I have a question for you. Which of these three kinds of lies are you more tempted to believe? See, if you're like me, um, you're probably tempted to believe all of them at times. Because they often come at us in package deals. That you have to deconstruct the lie to realize, oh, there's two of the three right here. (laughs) But which one are you most tempted to believe when you look at those three? Then how do we fight the lies? Okay, if that's the primary battle we're in, how do we fight them? I'm so glad you asked that too. Okay, so here's how we fight the battle. We fight the battle with the truth of scripture. How did Jesus fight the battle? Do you know when Jesus faced the three temptations and there, his identity was being questioned and, the, and here's a way, a shortcut to the good life was given to him, how did, he, how, did he, how did he battle back? He quoted scripture. I'm convinced if you cut Jesus, he'd have like bled scripture. You know what I mean? Like he was just so saturated and full of scripture. It wasn't just that it was scripture. It was, it was true he battled it with truth. It's interesting to me, when Paul um, talks about spiritual warfare, he says the, to put on the belt of truth. Now, why did he call it the belt of truth? The belt, this was imagery of a, uh, a Roman soldier, and all of the pieces of the armor a Roman soldier would, would wear would attach to the belt. In other words, at the very center of your life, you need to have truth because it's what holds everything together. Then, what does he say as he keeps going, walking through it? There's only one offensive weapon that we are given in the armor of God. What is it? Here's the offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit. And he tells us what the sword of the spirit is in case you're wondering, which is the word of God. In other words, the, the way that you cut through the lies is through the word of God. So, how do we battle? We battle with truth. At the end of the Bible. There's a picture of Jesus. I love this picture. He comes out for battle. And he's riding on a stallion. It describes him coming out, and this is what's is so interesting as he comes out for battle, do you know he never fights? He never fights. But what it does say is this, that out of his mouth is a double-edged sword. You're like, that's pretty sweet, right? Come on, guys. That's pretty sweet. Out of his mouth is a double-edged sword. That's my king, right? What is it saying? In fact, in that passage, it calls him faithful and true. What it is saying is, is that Jesus is the one who will bring victory and he will bring victory because he speaks truth. And that truth is a sword that cuts through the lies and he will be faithful and true. He will be the victor. So how do we come against the lies? We come against it with truth and Jesus will be the one who brings the victory because he is the source of truth. In a world dominated by Roman power, the author of Revelation is saying, Jesus' truth will ultimately win. So what is that? Like, how do we live this? How do you fight with truth? Well, I'd like to share just a quick story or two, and then we're going to close. Um. I have mentioned here before that I, a few years ago I went on sabbatical, and when I went on sabbatical, I went to a place in Colorado where I spent two weeks with a, uh, a guy who is a spiritual director, author, therapist. I don't know what his title is. He just does this, and you sit on the couch and talk and so on, right? I spent uh, two weeks with him, and he gave me homework one night. He said this. He said, I want you to write down every lie you're tempted to believe. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm gonna have to turn the page on that one. You know, like there's a lot. And I came back with the lies I'm tempted to believe, and there were a lot. His name is Michael John Kusick, and Michael said to me, Okay, here, here's what we're gonna do, Pete. So I gave him, I handed him my homework. I said, Okay, here's the lies I'm tempted to believe. He said, Okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do three things. We're gonna announce that you've been tempted to believe these things. Then we're going to renounce your alliance with that lie. And then we're going to pronounce the truth that comes against that lie. And so for the next two and a half to three hours, it was emotional. It was exhausting. But one by one, I confess that I, I announced I believe this lie. And then I renounced any place that that lie would have in my life. And then I pronounced the truth over my life over that lie. And I haven't battled a lie since. No, (laughs) not true. But it was a huge turning point in my life. And in the battle against the lies of the enemy. But can I tell you, I still battle lies. The last two weekends, I've woken up on a Saturday morning with anxiety and worry. Two weekends ago, woke up with anxiety and worry. I talked to Amy. I'm anxious and I'm worried. And do you know how I fought the battle? A worship song came to my head and my heart. And I began to declare the song. And what I saw was underneath my worry and anxiety were two lies. Number one was a lie about the character of God. And fundamentally, it was that I was questioning his faithfulness. Now, if you gave me a Scantron test, I would have said, faithful, true. But functionally, I was living as if it wasn't true. And then the other lie was, is that I'm only lovable if I perform in a certain way and can produce certain things. Now, I would not never check that box on a test either, but functionally, that's what the worry and anxiety was about, that my identity was on the line in some way. And so I began to proclaim a worship song over those false lies that said God is not faithful and your performance will determine your value. And as I began to proclaim the truth of it, those things broke off of me. Then this Saturday, I woke up and... Go downstairs to have breakfast, Amys, "How are you doing?" I said, like, "Be honest with you, I'm full of anxiety." Well, why? And I began to share with her why, which is beyond the scope of this message. And then I went. And had my time with the Lord. And can I tell you out of all of the pages of scripture. My daily reading that day could not have been better for the point of my anxiety. And it broke the lie that I was battling. And I can tell you for the rest of that day. I was able to walk in peace because the truth had destroyed. The sword of the spirit had cut through the lies. And as Jesus said. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is why we need classes like Theology of the Body, because there's a lot of lies that go on over that topic. On my phone, I don't ever bring my phone up, because. but on my phone, I have statements on my phone that when lies start to bombard me, I pull up the statements. And what the statements are, just a distillation of different verses that that speak to that lie. And I can open up my phone and just read through it. And as I read through it, I can feel the sword of the Spirit cutting through the lies and setting me free. So I have statements that I've written so I can wield the sword. You're like, man, he battles a lot of lies, doesn't he? That's my pastor. (laughs) Sorry. But I have a feeling I'm not the only one. I have a feeling that if you're to go underneath your anxiety and your worry, if you're to go underneath your lack of submission, underneath your fears, you'd recognize there's a battle that's waging. And it's full of misinformation because it's trying to set the narrative of your life so it can have more territory in your life. But Jesus says, No, 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 no. I've come. And I am the source of truth. In fact, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. I'm the way back to the Father out of your rebellion to, to the good life of what you were intended for. I am the truth, and as you follow me, I'll show you how to walk in truth and not in lies, and I am the life. I am the source of life. So as we close, will you stand with me? We're doing... We have a core group curriculum around these three enemies. And the reason why I mention that is this. My hope is is that even tonight... I would love for you to isolate a lie that you're tempted to believe. And I would like for you to announce that lie. I've been tempted to believe this. And then renounce it. Give this no space in my life. And then pronounce truth. So Jesus and his truth can take more territory. So Jesus and his truth can set the narrative. And as that narrative is set, take the territory of your life. So the worship team is going to come forward. I have a very simple question. What lies are you tempted to believe? And maybe you're like, I'm not sure how to even what access truth. I'm like new to the Bible and this whole thing is kind of new to me. Then talk to your core group leader. Talk to one of our staff. We'd be happy to help you learn what the truth says to combat the lie so that you could be set free. And maybe you're going to have to put some things in your phone. Maybe you're going to have to worship because sometimes worship just elevates us out of it, sets our minds on who he is and who we are in light of him. And it does something in the depths of our hearts. And so as we close tonight, we're actually going to sing a song about him. And we're going to come against the lie of who he is. Because here's what happens. When we get him right, Then we can start to understand who we are, and then we can understand, oh, where the good life is found. So as we close, let's worship together. But please, journal this week. What lies are you tempted to believe? Renounce them, and then pronounce the truth in your life. Amen? All right, let's worship together. As we were singing that song, I just thought, we need to learn how to wield the sword. You're your never say, you need to learn how to wield the sword. Right? You didn't do it, but you know what I'm saying. We need to learn how to cut through the lies. As Jesus said, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Lord, I pray for these precious students that you love. Lord, I pray that the lies of the enemy would be broken in their life. Lord, I pray you'd expose the lies so they could renounce the lies and you would fill them with your truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus, we pray that you would take more territory in our hearts as we believe your narrative. Lord, as we walk around these grounds, I pray that that you would set the narrative of our hearts and our minds and that you would take more territory through us and in us. In Jesus' name, I pray. So as we close tonight, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Let's have a wonderful week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.